My name's Tracy Smith. I was born and raised in Kalamazoo, Michigan. In 1998, I attended the South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, Texas. And at a promotional side event at a local coffee house, I saw a showcase featuring some of the most talented performance poets in the country. Afterwards, I returned home and founded the Kalamazoo Poetry Slam. Now, almost 25 years later, for the sake of history, for the sake of nostalgia, and for some of the incredibly talented people we've lost along the way, I give you, dear listener, the Keizu Poetry Slamcast. This is Slam Later, like the poems are like, you dirty fucking whore. But this is one of the good ones from the beginning. My ears reach in the suburban noise of night. There's a question asked in one naked moment. I am the Smith. I am the poet. I am the Industrial Revolution. No longer bright as fireflies. And the place of finding how wonderful we are, we form the sweet nature of the future and the reasons that we sing. Y'all remember last week when I said we were done with 2001? Well, we're not. Went back through the archives to make sure I had everything in the 2002 folder, and I found a couple more recordings. So this week, we're going back to May 29th of 2001. We'll rewind back a few months to a slam and a feature from Chicago, Illinois, by the name of Jason Pettis. This show ran just over an hour, so I'm gonna I'm gonna cut it up to about uh, two thirty-five minute podcasts. So you get the first half this week, second half next week. Yeah, enjoy. They are there, and you are here, and you're both scanning the room, and your eyes meet, and they linger for too long. They lock onto each other, and you think, my God, that's it. That's my future spouse. But that's not what you tell yourself. You say to yourself, I think I know that person from someplace. And you go over to the person. You say to them, aren't you that friend of my friend? And we were at that one party over at that guy's apartment that one night. You know, we were listening to that song, and that woman was making those drinks we were gulping down. And your future, sp- your future spouse says, uh, yes, I remember that. We were uh, debating that political point and then we started talking about that writer you know the one with the books and the two of you will keep talking and neither of you have ever met before but you'll convince yourself otherwise and they'll buy a drink and you'll buy a drink and you'll buy them a drink and they'll buy you a drink and then the bartender will buy both of you a drink and you will toast the bartender and you will tip the bartender too much because they said what a cute couple you are They know you're not a couple, but they said it anyway to help you get lucky. And you and your future spouse will move to a table, and they'll light your cigarettes, and you'll light their cigarettes. And one of those people that hands out cigarettes will come by, and they'll get into a conversation with you. And they'll say what a cute couple you are. And you and your future spouse will laugh nervously and slip your hands into each other's underneath the table. And your future spouse will suddenly kiss you. They'll put their soft lips onto yours, and you will think of how great this night is. You will think, my God, I could marry this person. And you will marry this person out there somewhere. You will walk into a church you don't believe in and swear your love in front of a bunch of people you don't like. You will sit at a banquet table and watch your drunk uncle do the chicken dance out there somewhere. But here you sit at the table and you hold hands and you will say to them, when we need to be somewhere, we are taken to nowhere. And when I want to be everywhere, I end up being anywhere. T is the I as M is the E. We think it's a straight and narrow line, but it's more like the splattered remains of a cell phone after being chucked off the observation deck of the John Hancock building by an angry ex-lover. I see you in four dimensions. You are seven and you are cold. You are 77 and you are frail. You are 17 
19 and you are angry. You are 27 and you are with me. And technically, this night will never end if you look at the construct of time in a spatial manner rather than a narrative one, which means you should come home with me now and we will make love like crazed weasels. Your future spouse will laugh and say, all you had to do was ask, and the two of you will skip off. Two prepubescents skip, uh, playing hopscotch with one rock. Two middle-agers counting each other's pills and arguing over who's going to take back the videos. Two studs in the primes of their lives with one of your penises and one of your other one's vaginas. Sweating, screaming, kicking, but that's out there somewhere. And here they are on the other side of the bar. You are both scanning the room and your eyes meet. And here... Out there, in here, out there. Thank you. Uh, I'm Jason Pettis. I'm from Chicago. I'm your feature tonight. I, uh, I, hope, I hope you all get a chance to uh, stick around. I'm going to do a, a full half-hour set uh, a little later in the evening. Um, I heard that the weather's been really... Sh- shitty in Kalamazoo recently so I'm really I'm really glad that uh, you've all come out tonight Um, this is from a book of mine called the Dow of now it's all stories about midwestern white trash it's called the the Dow of nicotine I've been on nicotine patches for two and a half years now they seem to work I I don't know I can't really tell I mean I, I still smoke I still have a cigarette now and then, well, maybe like five a day, so I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm probably too close to it to tell, you know, like you need to be able to step back from a situation to get a good, uh, uh, a good overall look at the picture, right? So like I'm right in the middle, so it's probably not up to me to judge. You know, I just always thought that, you know, like nicotine patches are supposed to be a finite thing, right? Nicorette gives you the power to quit. I mean, that's what they're always saying on the commercials. I mean, the things are fucking expensive, you know, like 60 bucks for a box of them. I mean... Shit, if I'm going to be addicted to nicotine, right, I should just say fuck it and go back to cigarettes. I mean, that's what I tell myself sometimes. I, You know, like late at night at my apartment by myself, that's what I say to myself. I, I mean, I don't really talk to myself, you know. It's just like what one part of my brain is saying to the other part of my brain while I'm sitting there in my apartment totally fucking jonesing for a cigarette. I mean, what's the fucking point? Okay, I mean, yes, I do talk to myself sometimes when I'm in my apartment by myself, but I mean... Who doesn't, you know? Well, I don't mean that literally. I mean, how can we tell exactly how many people talk to themselves in their apartments alone? I mean, we're not there, right? I mean, that's the definition of being alone. Except for, like, if you wired everybody's houses together, like some sort of CIA police state, you know? Like, we're peeping at everybody's windows and we're videotaping all our neighbors, right? You know, like, why can't we all get along? Yeah, you know, it's like fucking like uh, Big Brother or something, you know? Like that book, you know? That one book, that, that, that book with all the, you know, like Big Brother and the video screens and the rats and all that shit. I read that book in high school. I, I kind of read that book in high school. I, I skipped around a lot. Just sort of, you know, like read enough to get to the test. Actually, that's when I started smoking. Now that I think about it, I started smoking right when I started that book. This guy Tab started me smoking. Well, his name wasn't really Tab. It was like Mark or Mike or Matt or fucking Mitzi or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. We all called him Tab, right? Because he was the one with the fucking tabs, right? Uh, yeah, fucking tabs, right on, right? And the teachers would always ask us why we called him Tab. And we said that because it was always because he was drinking Tab soda all the time, which incidentally, he was always drinking Tab soda all the time. But I think it was because so that our lane cover story would, would look all right. I mean, teachers are fucking idiots, right? I mean, there was so much shit you could get away with in my high school. I spent half of my life in high school fucking stoned and the other half tripping my balls off, right? 
And look at me, I got a degree, you know? It doesn't take a fucking rocket scientist to get a high school diploma, you know? You just show up to class every day and you don't make a scene, just sit in the back and slouch down real low and keep your mouth shut and they'll just pass you right on through. Teachers are so fucking stupid, you know? But like Tab, right? Tab was the one who got me smoking for the first time. Marlboro Lights, man. He always had, I'll never forget this, as long as I live, he always had like a thousand empty crumpled up packs of Marlboro Lights on the floor of his Nova. Shit, the 74 primer gray nova we just fucking drive around we get high as a kite and just fucking drive around cruise the movie theater parking lots on saturday nights try to pick up a couple of girls you know i mean we never would of course we're not big jocks we weren't football players or anything just a couple of freaks driving around the 74 nova blasting dark side of the moon out of tab 17 inch woofers yeah that's right these fucking kick-ass 17 inch woofers it was crazy man his stereo took up like half the back seat and he just like turned it up to like seven and the fucking windows would shake you know you could feel feel the fillings in your teeth just rattle and this tab would like look over at me and he'd nod his head smile and hand me another marlboro light you know well i mean like sometimes some girls would go party with us right because like tab was fucking hooked up right i mean the dude was amazing he could just get like anything under the sun i don't know how he did it man he could get you pot or speed or acid or shrooms or crank or rush or coke or x or peyote or mescaline i mean the only thing that he refused to get was angel dust because he was always talking about how that shit would mess you up and i yeah, he was right I guess. I mean, I never really uh, knew anyone who did Angel Dust, but we heard about this guy, this dude that we used to party with, and Jack had said that Mark had told him about Brian being at a party with this guy, and the guy just, like, totally, like, fucking flipped out on dust one night at this party, and he, like, fucking, like, picked up the refrigerator with his own two hands. He just, like, fucking, like, hoisted a seven-foot-tall refrigerator into the air, and fucking, like, everyone freaked out, and I guess, like, the cops had to come or something, and they, like, fucking, like, shot him three times or something before the dude finally calmed down. But, I mean, you couldn't really trust anything Jack would tell you. I mean, Jack was full of shit most of the time. He's always talking about how he went out to L.A. in the 70s and got, like, totally wasted with Christy McNichol at some party. And, like, fucked her in the back of a pickup truck. And we were like, whatever. I mean, dude, you never knew when he was blowing shit up your ass. Which is why I liked hanging out with Tab, you know? Because Tab may have been a total waste case, right? I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. <laughs> he was, all right? <laughs> <laughs> he could hardly fucking well you know what i'm saying he could hardly fucking get through life but the thing was the thing was the tab would never steer you wrong tab never lied and he never stole and he never tried to sell you a bag of stinkweed or anything i mean tab was right on you know he was right on which is why i hung out with him yeah just like Cruising a mall, dropping off bags, fucking blasting Zeppelin on summer nights, you know, man? Like, what happens to our youth, you know? Where does it all go? I mean, one day you're fucking cruising around, time of your life, party every night, and next day you sell coke to the wrong fucking guy, and bang, you got a bullet in your chest at 22. I mean, who gets a bullet in their chest at 22? I mean, Tab never did anything wrong, you know? I mean, he never caused anyone any harm. He always gave me a dime bag on spec. He was that kind of guy, you know? He had the high score on Galaga for five years straight. He was that kind of guy. And then all of a sudden, they're putting him in the ground, and man, the party is over. You know what I mean? The next thing I know, I'm waking up, and I'm 28 years old. And I'm the night manager at Quickie Mart. I've been wearing goddamn nicotine patches for two and a half years. Where's the time go? Well, anyway, here's your receipt. I need you to sign next to the X here.
Yeah, you have a good day too. Come again. Thank you. Woo, everybody keep it going for Jason, man. Yeah! Dude, he's gonna be our feature later. Make a final stand. There's no be by the devils, but by God's hand. This one wouldn't have been written without spider fingers. I'm telling you what God knows. Johnson, come on, give it up. Give him a lick, Dale. Give him a lick. I want to tell him to give you some licks. Let him give you a lick. Pray to 
Come on, give it, give it to him. I tell you this, motherfucker. He bites off her finger, chews it up, swallows it in his dreams. And she is his winter coat in her dreams. She wraps herself around his thighs without a belt because, uh, who wears coats with belts anymore. And he never meant to be a poet. She never meant to be a poet. And you and I will never love again. And really, really, that's okay with me. Thank you. Sure. Okay, judges, I'm going to call out your name and you're going to call out a score. Don, are you ready with that? Uh, good. You're so cool. <sighs> Joe, what do you think? 8.4. 8.4 from Joe. Dale? 8.4. Very agreeable. Kendra and friends? 8.0. 8.0 from Kendra and friends. Trisha? 8.5 and Chuck. Nine. Nine. We threw out the high score, we threw out the low score. 25.3. That is exactly that exactly is exactly how the slam works. Congratulations, judges. Thank you very much. And now we get on with the official thing. The real thing. Here's how it goes. I had to reconfigure because we actually have eight poets and not seven because I didn't check the list in time. So uh, Andy is going to be number four after Chris, and then Cherie will be number five. So we have eight. But anyway, it doesn't none of that matters because Gordon is first. Is he ready? Are you ready? Give him a big hand. If a tree fell in the woods, 
I would have to say that it would depend on the tree. What I mean to say is, if I were a tree and I was to fall, I think it'd be like that dream where everything moves in slow motion and you're not sure if you're flying or falling. Looking toward the sky with the sensation of being disoriented from spinning around as a child. Stopping quick, unbalanced, a doll with a spring neck. I stopped spinning and the world did not. Is that the illusion or was the fact that the world kept spinning the reason why I fell? Thinking this in slow motion, looking toward the sky like one allows oneself to fall into a pile of hay. Or no, better yet, like one of those bungee jumpers not knowing if the line will do its job, like in slow motion, like that dream where you're not sure if you're flying or falling. Like a tree in the woods. But if I were a tree in the woods, instead of waiting for the impact, I would choose to believe I was flying and look, taking in all that I could in the hope to see that something that would keep me off the ground in that slow motion like a dream, not knowing if I was flying or falling. I would choose to believe that I was flying, or no, wait, maybe that's not safe. Perhaps I should choose to think I was falling in that dream in slow motion and prepare for the inevitable. Would I bounce when I hit the ground? I'm falling, and instead of being in slow motion, it keeps getting faster and faster, and faster and faster, and faster and faster and faster and faster. I'm falling like a tree in the woods. I've been to the forest. I know that trees sometimes fall. And sometimes another tree will catch a tree within its reach. That's nature. And if you were a tree falling in the woods in slow motion like a dream, I'd ask the wind to guide you to me, if the wind could hear a tree in the forest that was not falling. And if I were a tree falling in the woods, I'd make every sound I possibly could. Or would that just be what another tree might hear as a song? And listen, thinking, what a pretty sound, not understanding that I was a tree falling in the woods in slow motion like a dream. Unsure if I were flying or falling. <laughs> wow. Chuck? 9.9 .9 from the evil judge. He's off his medication. Trisha? 9.5? Joe? 9.0? Dale? 8. And Kendra? 8.5. Okay, so like this Friday and Saturday is the invitationals. Did anybody mention that? And what that means is we've like invited a bunch of poets from all over the place to come and slam, and they're going to slam on Friday night, and they're going to slam on Saturday night, and it's going to be really, really cool. 27.0 for Gordon. Give him a big hand. Poet number two. Number two. Number two. Todd. The March dew of that school bus morning will never dry off my bones. Mark Jones had my brother pinned to the ground. He was pounding him. I stood by and watched while he pummeled my brother in the face, me weakly whispering, enough, that's enough. Later, retelling the story to stunned friends, I had struggled to break free, arms held behind my back, but I was only held by the threat of, you want to be next? 
I stood by and watched while he kicked my brother in the stomach. My brother started lifting weights the very next day because I stood by and watched while he smashed my brother's nose, blackened his eye, cut his lip, cracked his ribs, bruised his kidneys. I always wanted to be the hero, saving the day when all hope was lost, but I've run away every single time. Television reporters interviewing a woman after saving four children. Strangers in a burning house she carried down one by one through burning door frames. Or the man after leaping in the flood rage river to save a drowning dog. Always hear the same words from these heroes. I just did what anyone else would have done. I didn't think. I just did what I had to do. And I always wonder at the television's darkening screen if I would have done the same or if I would have been one of the nameless onlookers who had measured the heat of the flames against the thickness of skin or the velocity of the river versus the strength of arms and legs. By then, the hero has already acted. Too late for the rest of us, she emerges blackened and coughing from smoke, carrying the last child in her arms or dripping and exhausted, pulling himself onto the riverbank, lifting a golden retriever to dry ground. And I, in a room full of angry, laughing heads, lips bare to show gnashing teeth, spitting acid slander, me desperately fighting to speak behind tightly pressed lips, struggling but silence. Remember Peter denying Christ. Once, he is not my brother. Twice, that is not my brother. Thrice, that is not my brother. And I, at a family reunion in northern Michigan, listening to my uncle proudly sharing his newest repertoire of Korean shopkeeper jokes. Me, not laughing, but silence. Remember a man on the side of a lonely Jasper Road, watching the corpse of James Byrd Jr. dragging through the gravel road, bouncing into the air, clothes, then skin, then limbs, shredded to pieces by a pickup truck, whispering to himself, he's not my brother, he's not my brother. And I, in a smoky college bar, drinking a beer in private, listening to the pack of Alpha Omegas, rambling off their drunken litany of ass pirate, butt surfer, fudge packer, bone licker. Remember, a reluctant man in a darkly lit Laramie bar, wanting to warn Matthew Shepard away from the snarling margirls he was leaving with, saying nothing as Matthew walks with these men out the door into a wooden fence and a pistol whipping. Back in that Laramie bar, the silent man is convincing the bottom of his shot glass. He was not my brother. He was not my brother. I always wanted to be the hero, saving the child, the dog, the woman, when all hope was lost at the very last moment, always wanting to do the right thing, but always thinking too much, closing my mouth. Scars on my tongue read like the thorosi of all the words I never said, but no more. That's enough. The next time I see a cross burning, I will tear it down. The next time I hear the yells, the bangs, the crashes, the ensuing weeping from the upstairs apartment, I will pound on that door. The next time I see a woman assaulted, a man mugged, I will cross that street. The next time I'm called to act, I will not shrink. I will not think. I will do what needs to be done. Right on, right on. <sighs> Dale? 8.9 from Dale. Joe? 
9.5 from Joe. Trisha? 9 from Trisha. Chuck? Chuck? 8.3. Apparently his medication is chicken. Kicking in. Kendra? 8.7 from Kendra. Give Todd a big hand. It took us a little while after all that slamming in April to like get our energy back, but I think we got it back. You think we got it back? I think we got it back. Score? 26.6 for Todd. Up next is Chris. Give her a big hand. Jesus wakes up, rolls back that stone, and goes for a cup of coffee. Jesus rolls over, sits up, and stretches, scratches, and rubs his eyes with the back of a sore hand. Jesus thinks he sees colored eggs in the grass. Jesus, it's been three days. Jesus decides to lay it down. He rolls back that stone and goes to town, goes to his compound in Waco, to his TV talk show, his school prayer. He rises to the lips of an auto mechanic in Jericho, Vermont. Jesus Christ! Yes. Uh, cream or sugar with that? Jesus rolled back that stone and went to town. Meanwhile, Mary Magdalene, having come upon the tomb, rejoices at having found baskets of chocolate. Jesus Christ blows in into town in a jazz quintet, quintet with Miles and Monk and Bird Parker. Jesus plays jazz drums and he jams. Jesus, having rolled back that bebop punch, makes tracks on the sly. Jesus is harassed by old men outside the diner. Cut your hair. Get a real job. Jesus turns on with Mingus while fans, fans gather palm fronds after getting the lowdown from Mary. Peter and Paul race to town to tack up handbills, and Paul is baked, and Peter gets there first. The Jesus Christ Quintet tonight only. Come one, come all. See our Savior give with his jazz admission by guilt. Jesus rolled back that stone, stoned on that jelly roll Morton Jan. Jesus takes a solo, stops sweet roll and pops. The crowd is hopping, and palm fronds are waving. Yeah. Okay. Kendra. Eight. Joe, 8.6. Dale? <laughs> Just give me a fucking number, dude. 8.3 from Dale. <laughs> Thank you, man. <laughs> I totally lost track. Uh... Charlie. 8.2 from Charlie. Did, is that all five? No. Trisha, I haven't called yet. 8.1 from Trisha. Do we have our shit together? Well, sort of. Kind of. 24.6 for Chris. Applaud the poet. 
Absolutely. <sighs> the next name on the list confused me because I thought it was somebody and then it was somebody else and now it's you know, like this guy we haven't heard from in, in a long time. His name is Andy. Is he ready with a poem? Or is he? Come on, man. Give him a hand. How's it going? <clears throat> How can one ask to be born severely sexual? I cannot remember asking, Mom, was I a crude karma baby? Perfect system of justice karma, what past repository of pain taints the empty state of infancy? A former serial rapist sent to the hell of life to lie with woman in love incarnate? I feel my way back to those faint, sensual frames, not frighteningly familiar. Just passively conditioned, I crawl under the covers with naked cousin and explore the fruits of womanhood, some years weaned from the breast of my first love. I now root to the sacred grass of the pubis and altar adjoining pillars of an earthbound goddess, reclined, erotic, to acquiesce nothing but lifelong impressions of a child's curiosity. I was told not to tell. Oops. But for ages I did not, to carry this unbearable burden of sexual fantasy throughout my life to date, I cannot escape a want to touch from intangible depths. The need arises to glide on the highest measure of pleasurable friction, to bliss out my victim's sexual stimulus, whether they elicit with intent or not, I imagine, and create the lock to fit this cursed key, I must endlessly try to unlock the ultimate fantasy. I must not judge, distort my innocence, but work with this weakness until I can rest someday without want of a woman's touch, without want of an excess anything, because that's my calling. But how I cling to this weakness and love how it constitutes my identity and affirms behavior's uncontrollability, provides a false sense of security, attachment to what maturity says, let go. Hell no. <laughs> Instead, I hold it loosely, continue to use sensually. A powerfully woven web sets intricate traps growing to entangle luscious insects. Our lascivious base friendships, sincere to the extent of increasing vulnerability of all parties, not to extort, hurt, or demean, but to satiate the seam that moved about my being from the beginning to end. Therein lies the mystery I delight to demystify by way of knowledge derived firsthand from tongue or cock I, from spirit, dark or light, the carnal score is right, is real, else my life be false and death a truer sanctuary, apprehensive to its reality, I seek its comfort, but despise its power over me. Could I conquer it, but do I want to? Move on, leave the wanting child behind, see a egoistic chaos of cyclic fun for a transcendental dance on the sun to melt the fires of fallen Adamic man and join with an infallible head, a sensitive to other's head that thinks no evil, loses no vitality, gives not powers to the worship of impermanent flesh, breaks no promises to capricious impulses of lust, suffers not over commitment, conditions, or incongruent relations, belief systems, is the quest for truth, all knowledge, an innate propulsion toward salvation, or a perversion of the human urge for ultimate sexual fulfillment. Had I been born asexual, I would be no more or less ignorant of this dichotomy, yet I ponder what my weakness would then be, and if the attachment to righteousness, moral perfection, 
enlightenment would remain stronger than the temptation to fall. Had I been born asexual, I would not be this floating image in a homosexual's dream or the penetrating possession in a feminine seam. I'd cease to be this anatomical playground piece in exchange for a seat next to the Most High Priest as his equal, if not this severely sexual being. On my way to Firehouse Row, I tried not to think of Juliet Forrest. I hadn't seen a body put together like that since I'd solved the case of the murdered girl with the big tits. 